Hey everybody, welcome back to The Hustle. It's John Lamoureux. Okay, I am coming from you, to you from outside of our Airbnb on the north shore of Oahu. This is the last day of our vacation. Cars are driving by. The weather is nice for once. And I wanted to do this specifically because it's a complete contrast to our guest this week. It is Canadian singer-songwriter Ron Sexsmith. So Ron, I don't know what to say about Ron because in the industry and with other people within other people who are considered amazing songwriters of this generation everybody has a long appreciation and respect for ron sexsmith he's one of the best there is out there as a singer songwriter he's never really had that like giant hit or radio staples or you know that that thing that breakout experience that has brought him to the masses so it's like if you know you know a term i'm i kind of hate but that's what it is if you know the talent of ron sexsmith then you know what you're getting into he's been consistently amazing now for like over 30 years and uh, every album is good in fact i refer to him in here as almost boringly consistent because there's never a dip there's never a a risk that he took that didn't work out. There's never writer's block. There's never anything that doesn't work. And last week, he put out his newest album called The Vivian Line. And this is a song off of it right here called What I Had in Mind. And it's just as good as all the other ones. So I wanted to ask him about all of this. He's actually on a North American tour right now. It just kicked off recently, a week or two ago. I think he's passing through Denver uh, in March or maybe it's April. So I'm hoping to see him then. But anyway, we just get into, you know, what does it take to write songs? How do you, how do you, do you constantly have just like a well of great ideas in you, within you all the time? I don't, how do you, how are you so good at this? And we get into, you know, the rest of his career too. He's a very humble, humble guy. Um, he has, you know, quite a unique Twitter identity, I guess you could say. We get into that too, but just ever, just all of it. He's so good at what he does. Anyway, I may be in Hawaii, but when we had this conversation, he was calling me from his home outside of Toronto. Okay, so first and foremost, Ron, I um, I love the new album, and I love it because it's just as wonderful as the album before it, and that was just as wonderful as the album before that, and the one before that, and I almost feel like there's there's almost a boring consistency to a Ron Sexsmith album. It's going to be quality every single time. There's really no such thing as a Ron Sexsmith misstep. Maybe there is to you, but as a listener, it never feels that way. And so the thing that I really am curious about is if I'm curious how you challenge yourself as a songwriter. Do you, and I say it that way purposely because I'm curious, number one, if you even feel like you do, or number two, someone like you, is there just like a running river going on inside of Ron all the time that he just needs to dip his foot in and he pulls out songs? Well, you know, um, I have a lot of um, issues with, with, you know, with most of my albums, you know, like oftentimes, especially the early albums, it was my singing that bothered me, you know, or, the, or maybe the production wasn't quite right. But for the most part, I'm pretty happy with all the songs. Like there isn't a song that I couldn't play you now because I'm embarrassed about it or something. And, um, and you know, I, I think for me, uh, I, you know, when after the first album came out and all the press were saying nice things about my songwriting, it kind of, 
I didn't want to be the guy, you know, who was sort of a one album sort of fluke. And it really, um, yeah, I mean, I, I just, I would always uh, try to stockpile songs, you know, I wanted to have more than I needed. So I could edit out the ones I didn't think were very strong or, yeah. um, but, but you don't, you never know. You think you're doing the right thing. There were songs that were left off certain albums that, I'm still scratching my head because they, you know, they were better than some of the ones that made it on. But right. um, I do have a kind of um, maybe a quality control, you know, when, when I write, um, uh, you know, I, I want every song on the, on the album, not that every song has to be some real deep, profound song, but, you sure. know, making a movie, making albums like a movie, you know, you want to have a lighter moments and, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, some explosion or whatever like that. Yeah. And so, so when I'm putting an album together, I'm thinking about it in, in that way, you know, like a book or a movie, yeah. you know, what are we going to start with? You know, you want to have something that's, you know, inviting or something, you know? Yeah. And um, so, you know, but I, I, I remember some journalists at one point saying a similar thing to a, uh, you know, so the boring consistency, you know, because, because some, you know, the, I hope it's okay. You know, I, you know, I love you. That's no, I'm, no, I, it's I just so that. consistent. Yeah. No, I, and I worry about that because, you know, there's that expression. It's, uh, I, I'm trying to remember what it is now. It's, but you, if you, it's better to fail, like, you know, some spectacular fashion <laughs> than to succeed boringly or, or something <laughs> like that, right? <laughs> And, if that uh, wasn't a saying, you just coined it. It makes yeah, sense. I, I get it. That's not verbatim, but but so I remember, uh, you know, because there are some bands who, who you know, would would have a series of really awful albums, and then they come out with one that everyone was like their comeback, and everyone went, went nuts. And I don't know, that's just wasn't really, uh, I, you know, the albums are so expensive to make that I yeah. I, I didn't want to make anything that had filler or record mm. songs that I wasn't proud of. But okay. that may be that may be you know uh, boring to <laughs> some people because you know I don't want to be predictable you know because I yeah, see yeah. every album you know I mean I see each album being very different from each other mm -hmm. a lot of people don't see that but I you know because every record I'm in a different phase I think sure. I've sung, I'm singing better now than I was before and yeah uh, so you know I just yeah I mean I, I if I'm supposed to be a good songwriter so I, I that's always in the back of my mind that I don't want to, you know, I, I really want to put the effort in. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Um, okay. I have like a million questions based on everything you just said. One thing I did want to, I wanted to push back on a little bit. Like for instance, I had Glenn Phillips on here recently from Toe Duet Sprocket. Oh yeah. I love and Glenn. Me too. And uh, he was, you two, I think have probably a lot in common because it seems like you just write these beautiful songs so effortlessly and he was telling me about a challenge that in fact it's a game that he's a part of um where every day somebody named matt the electrician i don't know who that is he's great set, too yeah. okay so you know what i'm talking about sends yeah. out like a theme a, a, a song title and everyone playing the game has to go write a song based on that title and it could be nonsensical it could be deep it could be anything do you set for yourself parameters like that you know what i mean do you go you it, you're right your albums do uh they're not all the same they're just all good and so i'm curious if you set these kinds of things for yourself like i'm gonna i don't know i'm gonna write a rock song today or i'm gonna write about a past love or whatever um not 
not too much. Although if I if I'm writing an album and I'm and I have an overview of it, I, I might I might think to myself, oh, I need to write something that's sort of up tempo, or, or maybe I don't hear anything that sounds like it could be a single, or you know, mm-hmm. which is kind of ridiculous because I never get played on the radio anyway, you know. But <laughs> but still, you you know, when you make a record, you want to make sure that. Uh, you're not leaving something out or forgetting. I mean, sometimes I'll I'll have a title yeah. pop into my head for you know I think oh that might that sounds interesting that could be a good song and I have a little folder I write you know lyrics in and and potential song ideas. But but yeah, I don't really set very many goals for myself. It's it's this weird thing where I tend to write in batches. You know, mm-hmm. I have a little fragment here and then a fragment there, and I walk around the river. And little by little, you start to see an album taking shape. Mm-hmm. And some songs take longer to finish. And then and this, it's like this, the dam breaks at some point and they all kind of come through. Mm-hmm. And like I say, I always hope there's a few more than I'll need. Yeah. So I can be extra critical or something. <laughs> and um, it's funny because it's, you know, when I wrote my first songs, um, about, you know, actually, in the eighties is when I started kind of writing, but you know, there's always this feeling, Oh, maybe that's it. But for some reason, since I got my record deal, it hasn't stopped happening, you know? Mm-hmm. And, and a lot of my heroes were quite prolific too. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you sort of, you get in the zone where you're just, you know, it's like breathing somehow, yeah. but yeah. I mean, I'm not right. I'm not writing now at the moment, but I have an album in the wing, so I'm not really under the, any pressure. Right. right um but i know it'll happen at some point i'll find myself in the middle of some new tunes yeah okay you mentioned earlier about the voice and that's something that i've always been curious about with you as you know you don't necessarily sound or look like a typical rock star yeah. and i've wondered if when you were signed originally if um were you signed? Do you know were you signed on the strength of your songs, which is your hallmark? That's your calling card. Was mm. it with the imp- was it with the intention of did a label like they do with a lot of people sign really talented people with the intention of changing them to make them something they want versus mm. what the artist wants? You know what I mean? And yeah. so I wondered what what was the what got you discovered and signed originally? Well. It's funny because I, I initially signed to a publishing deal with Interscope. That makes sense. And my publisher was not very optimistic. He, you know, and I was already late twenties, and he figured, well, and I figured that this is probably all it's going to be. I'll write songs, maybe someone will do my songs. Mm-hmm. But, but at the same time, he was sending my demos out to some record industry people, sort of tastemakers. And there was a guy at the time named David Seegerson, who was the president of Polydor Records. And um, he really liked my songs and my singing. And he wanted to he wanted to see me, he wanted to meet me. And so Interscope, my publisher, flies me to New York. I'd never been to New York City in my life. And I'm in his office at 11 in the morning playing for David Seegerson. And he offered me a record deal on the spot. I mean, years and years of being turned down by everyone in Canada. All of a sudden, I'm in New York for less than three hours. And I'm, you know. um, But what happened was, because I was already on Interscope, um, he felt um, 
you know, loyal to Jimmy Iovine. And, and mm-hmm. he said, you know, I really should tell Jimmy Iovine about this. Jimmy Iovine hadn't been any, you know, interested in, at all mm-hmm. up till that point, you know. Mm-hmm. And so next thing I know, they're flying me out to L.A. to sing for Jimmy in his office about a, a week later. And so I was in a little bit of a bidding war. Mm-hmm. Um, ultimately, you know, I went with um, Interscope because, uh, you know, I – there was my publisher was under some pressure and it, it, it turned out to be the right move because David Segerson ended up, I think getting, losing his job a few months later or something. Mm-hmm. But, but, you know, I remember sitting in with Jimmy Iovine after he signed me and I, and I was sort of, I go, I don't really understand uh, what, <laughs> you know, what you want me for on this label, because, you know, you're talking uh, Eminem, Marilyn Manson, all this stuff. He likes really flashy people. It seems like yeah. to me. You know? and, and yeah, well, at that time, they were a relatively new label, but there wasn't a, you know, he told me he cut his teeth on songwriters, mm. you know, Springsteen and Tom Petty. Patty Smith, and, Stevie, yeah. Yeah, and that, and that was his explanation. He told me I, I reminded him of Roy Orbison, like, Ooh, you know, nice. my voice. And, and so he was saying all the right, all the right things. But I, I, I was still kind of mystified. And I don't think they really knew what to do with me. Mm-hmm. You know, I was all, like I say, by this point, I was like 30 or something. And, um, you know, like you said, I didn't look like I didn't, yeah. uh, you know, I didn't have a, I didn't know how to dress. I didn't know what my hair should do or anything. And I remember they had a, they threw a party for me in Malibu and I met all the label people. Uh-huh. And I felt so self-conscious because I thought they're looking at me like Jim, Jimmy's lost his mind or something. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. Um, <laughs> But then, you know, what happened was, I mean, I, I ended up making a record with Mitchell Froome. I met all these producers. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was so overwhelming because I, I could have made any any kind of record. I didn't know what to do. Mm-hmm. Mitchell Froome, I, I sort of, I felt he was the most honest to me in terms yeah. of what thought I was good at and not mm-hmm. so good at. Um, but M- Jimmy um, was not a, a fan of Mitchell's and he was not mm-hmm. happy. So we, I almost felt like he almost didn't like the record before we even even yeah. made it. Yeah. And so when when it came out, he sort of uh, I got passed over to someone else at the label to d- deal with, you know, mm-hmm. a guy named Tom Tom Wally, who I think you know sort of got me. Mm-hmm. Um, and thankfully, the first album it didn't sell a lot, but it got really good press. Yeah. And so they felt okay, you know, at that time it was sort of a cool thing to. It, to have like a cred artists yeah. on a label, it doesn't yeah. mean it doesn't mean anything at all now. But at the time, right. you know, right. they were having so much success that they could afford to have someone like me who was yeah. getting good reviews or whatever. Yeah. Um, so 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 that seemed to work for a while. I mean, I made I made well four albums for Interscope, but the fourth one they they uh, they let me take it elsewhere. Okay. Um, but I, I just couldn't believe my luck to be on such a, a label at that time to have yeah. after, you know, my twenties were spent just getting rejection after rejection. And then all of a sudden now I'm like on tour and I'm, yeah. you know, so I really have to, I really owe Jimmy Ivey a lot for signing me. I wish I even so had, I don't, I don't even have a contact from him anymore, but I would love to every now and then I think I should just email him and thank him, you know, because <laughs> even, even though I didn't have a lot of commercial yeah. success there, he, it really put me on the map. I don't know if I have one either. If I do, I'll send it to you. But um, I, um, 
Yeah, you mentioning Rich Mitchell makes a lot of sense because as you've probably heard before, um, I would put you in the similar category as Neil Finn. Neil is probably my favorite songwriter ever, and Crowded House is one of my favorite bands ever, and their debut album is my favorite album ever, and Mitchell produced it. So you aligning yourself with Mitchell and having the talent that's so similar to Neil's feels like a perfect marriage. You're right, though. I don't know that that's the marriage that Jimmy Iovine is thinking about, because I think about him wanting flash and a lot of you know style over substance, maybe even not completely. He's great at what he does, but you know what I mean? Well, and, I, I, think, um, I think they saw me more in a, I don't know, like Bruce Hornsby type of thing. Oh, good. Yes. You know, okay, which that wasn't sense. really, I mean, yep. he's fine and everything, but yeah, you know, Mitchell Froome, I felt really got my, um, just the sort of quirkiness of what I was yeah. doing. And I mean, he didn't know what my influences were. The first thing Mitchell asked me to do was put a, a tape a cassette together of some of my favorite songs. And, you know, so there was stuff on there with Charlie Rich and, mm-hmm. you know, Tim Harden and the Kinks. And mm-hmm. and so um, I think it helped him find a way into the project, you know, because yeah. there was something about my music. I remember he said something like, you know, I really like your your music, but I just don't know if it's cool or not. You know, like you couldn't <laughs> tell. It was like Karen Carpenter or something, you know, like there was something, <laughs> yeah, good point. something really um it wasn't ironic. It wasn't coming from a place of attitude or anything. It was coming really direct. And um, so it was a bit of a puzzle for him to figure out a way into it. But I think with the first album, I thought it was a brilliant move, you know, but he said, you know, cause your voice, you know, is like this sort of, you know, bird or something. And, and that should be up. That should be up here. Right. And everything else should be low so that nothing is competing with this warbly thing up here. And so the first record, it's very sparse and, you know, like a, almost like a black and white movie or something. True. And, and I think that was, and also the other thing is, is I think many other producers would have brought in all the hot session guitar players, mm-hmm. and stuff, but he wanted me to do all the guitaring mm-hmm. because he liked, he liked how I, how I played. Nobody wow. ever said that before. So yeah. it was a cool, uh, it was just really good. He trusted I trusted him and he trusted me and good. And then Chad Blake too was a big yeah. part of those records. You know? I always kind of pair them together. Um, I wanted to ask you, as I mentioned earlier, we're going to insert snippets of songs we talk about. And there's a couple of tracks of yours. One uh, for the driver that's on the, on the first album. And then the other one is um, heart's desire. i uh-huh. 
And the reason I kind of pair these two is because mm. they both end with almost like this psychedelic codas, yeah. which is not, which is unique. There's not, a, they're the only two Ron Sexsmith songs I know of that sort of have that ending. And I'm always interested in these production choices. Who makes these decisions when Ron Sexsmith is sitting on his bed writing, you know, for the driver, is he yeah. thinking, you know what this really needs is this psychedelic ending or does a does Mitch think about? Well, well, actually, that, that album was produced by Martin Treffy. Like for, oh, sure. for, yeah, yeah. for the driver uh, was from Retriever. But what happened was... Oh, I got it backwards. Yeah, sure. Yeah, right. so what right. happened was on that record, um, you know, I, I always thought in terms of side A and side B, even though they, it came out on a CD. And so for the driver was supposed to be the last song on side A. And it's a, it's a kind of a gentle ballad. Um, but because it's a CD, you know, you don't get to flip it over. And the next song was this rocking song called Wishing Wells. Yeah. And I, so I asked Martin, is there anything we can do to have like almost like a segue, you know, so it's not jarring this really tender ballad ends and then it comes in with the drums. So mm -hmm. he created this sort of loop of the melody for the driver mm -hmm. getting kind of more and more almost demented and, yes. and then goes into, uh, you know, yeah, wishing wells, and and the other one you mentioned, uh, heart heart's desire, uh, that had also sort of a freak the freak out ending, and that was just happened organically in the studio because we finished the song and I don't know somebody just kept playing and it turned into this freaky jam session, and that was fun because um, you know I love to play lead guitar, no one ever asked me to, so I got to kind of rock out a bit. Um, but, you know, whenever you're making a record, you know, I mean, the Beatles did that, right? They had all these funny little segues sure. and little talky stuff at the beginning of songs. And, uh -huh. and there's a tradition to that. And Mitchell, Mitchell, and actually all the producers I worked with sort of embraced that element of sort of fun, um, mm -hmm. you know. Okay. Uh, another one of your songs I want to ask you about, specifically because you mentioned earlier, I understand it so much better now about how, uh, you think of your albums in terms of movies or stories or whatever, because mm -hmm. you can almost always count on a Ron Sexsmith album ending with this gorgeous little, I don't know, just something that signifies this is the end and you've made it and, you know, safe travels. And one of my favorites of yours that does that is Now the Day is Done. The sun has gone, it arose but never shone, and now the day is done, before it ever begun. It was such a pleasant dream. Till someone pulled the plug T'was a rude awakening Guess it's time we all woke up And admit That something's very wrong The sun has gone It arose yeah, I just think it's beautiful, and I think you. I love that you end all your albums, or it seems that way anyway, with those things. Tell me about and now the day is done. 
Um, well, that song was written for, um, I mean, that whole album actually was kind of, uh, I, I'd lost two friends uh, in the same year, two high school friends. Um, one was sort of, it, you know, illness and the other one was uh, by choice, you know. Um, and um, and it was so hard to wrap my head around it. Like, what What is going on? And so that album, I mean, I'd started writing that record Try, I wanted to be like Edgar Allan Poe. I wanted to write all these little scary story songs like Snow Angel and this and that. But then when my friends died, it got me thinking all about mortality. And 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 so the album kind of came to be this sort of, you know, it's not all about death, but it seemed to have that vibe to it. And so And Now That It Is Done was a song I wrote for my friend who, who died. And uh, there's a couple on there I wrote for him, actually. But I always knew it was going to be the last song. Yeah. I didn't you know where else yeah. kind of could it go. Right. And but it is almost like a yeah, it's like a very something you might even hear in you know in church or something. Yes, that's what I was thinking and, too. And it had a very kind of old timey thing, and because yeah. I was just trying to imagine how what you know how dark a place you must be in to to have the courage to do to kind of end it all. Yeah, and so I'm, that in that song, I'm trying to figure figured out yeah you know, because it really sort of knocked my world uh you know off uh, you right. know off its axis or something and, yeah yeah and then it was my idea to have mitchell play out uh, you know fade out on the piano at the end yeah yeah you know he didn't even really want to do that because he thought it was sort of corny or something but yeah. i was like mm. i go no i think you know you want to this sort of feeling as it fades out like almost like a life goes on sort yeah. of feeling yes. or something which Beautiful. is what I what I wanted. So, but you know, most most of the albums will have a ballad. Uh, yeah, it's just sort of a way, a sort of a reassuring way to, to end. Yeah. Um, although my my latest, the one that's coming out next year for the first time, has it does have a ballad, but then right after it has this sort of finger snap and kind of yeah, Roger, I noticed. Miller, Roger Miller type song, and that I was I thought, I, and that was sort of an intentional thing. Like, well, let's. Yeah, let's because we had this song. We didn't know where it should go, and I thought, well, maybe that could be a nice, you know, like in a Broadway musical, you know, mm -hmm. let people out on a sort of happy, happy note. Yeah, you know. flowers all along the pathway. Um, yeah, yeah oh, I no, love that. That's actually the bonus track. Actually, that one. The oh, one I just the have the I'm, streaming thing here. Okay. Yeah, the one I was referring to is called Ever Wonder. Ever Wonder. Small the grand scheme, not
Yeah. yeah, which is done like this sort of upright bass, folk, country, folky thing. Okay. And, uh, which, I mean, originally wrote that. I wanted it to kind of sound like a Beach Boys thing. And, uh-huh. and that's the fun thing about working with someone. It, you may have an idea of how it's going to go, and then something completely different happens. So. One of the um, – something – another thing I think about when it comes to you is that um, there – either there aren't that many sad songs or, more accurately – the sad songs don't sound that sad. They sound happier. Um, in fact, you have a great song called Happiness, which yeah. I, is another one of my favorite tracks of yours. Happiness so hard to come by So good while it lasts Some people say that it ain't worth pursuing Cause it's always moving too fast But then uh, one of my other favorite tracks of yours is I Think We're Lost. Oh, wow. Which is a a sad sentiment, but the song is not, you know, oppressively happy. I How do you do you go in with that intention of let's discuss some heavy things, but let's do it lightheartedly? Um, I I don't really um, 
I don't go in with that. I mean, I, I always go in with complete songs. Mm -hmm. And a song like, I think, for Lost, um, I mean, I do like it when a song has a sort of downbeat lyric, but the music is up-tempo. Mm -hmm. I mean, Happiness is just all happiness, that song, you know. It's yeah, sort, sure. Um, Self-deprecating, whatever. But I think we're lost, again, because of, of you know, what that year, what was going on in my life. Um, and, and also what was going on in the world. It's strange now because everything seems really messed up now. So I don't know what I was worried about back then. But but I felt that <laughs> I felt a kind of sense of uh, impending doom at that time. And right. that's um, like if oh, I may, it might have even been about uh, climate change or something, you know. Mm -hmm. But I was just feeling like yeah, we're all we're all you know jumping off a cliff or something. Yeah. Yeah. And um, but I really liked. Um, it's funny with that one because, like a lot of songs on my albums, you you know you record them, you know, but you don't maybe you only play them live once or twice. Like that's one I've hardly ever played. But really, I, but, I, but I really like it though. I just I don't know why. I just I never get around to it. You know? mm. um, I want to ask you about some songs on the new album too. Uh, this idea of like happy songs or songs that sound happy. Another one yeah. of my favorites on the new album is This, That, and The Other Thing, which oh, yeah. feels like a feels like an idea that was just waiting to be written about and you nailed it. I wondered what the story on that one is. Um, well, yeah, I'm a huge fan of uh, like Smokey Robinson and, sure. and that kind of music. And so I think it just started with uh, just the kind of groove of it, you know, and I was mm -hmm. just singing nonsense words uh, over top. And then I got on to that, this, that, and the other thing expression, you know, because I do like to incorporate commonly used expressions mm -hmm. in my songs you know like a lot of my favorite especially the writers from the 40s and you know they would use a popular expression mm -hmm. and and then it would be a song title and so i've done that a lot in my career so this and the other thing I, yeah i was kind of surprised uh I, I was that no one else had already written a, a song maybe they have i don't know but it's i don't like, know but it felt like it was up for grabs so I so i was just for the longest time i didn't have any lyrics but i was like going you know this that the other thing you know playing that over and over mm -hmm. and then but you know the the title kind of uh points or pointed me in a direction you know because there's all these um every day in life you know there's these little distractions that keep us from doing mm -hmm. what we really would rather be doing or what so we true. need to be doing so, so true. And it, it just 
so the, the the lyrics almost sort of wrote themselves because it was just you know i had the i had the melody and the kind of groove going and i didn't want to get too lyrical or get too you know clever or something um but i i like that song because it it's very it's very different from every other song on the on the record mm-hmm. you know the, most of the album is coming at you in a baroque sort of pop way yeah. and that one is from a whole other neighborhood you know it's like yep. it's sort of uh again it's a smoky thing or bill withers thing or, or whatever mm-hmm. nice. although I, don't, I you know i can't really sing as good as those guys but you know what i mean i <laughs> I sure. Was doing, Inspired I was by that, I was doing my best. So yeah. You know, <laughs> you know. Um, now you were talking earlier about songs that you hoped would be good enough to be on an album, and if they don't, then you can be so, you can be critical. Diamond Wave. My understanding is that that song's been laying around forever. Was that yeah. a song that didn't make the cut earlier, or was it half finished until now? You know, our luck was bad for a little while. We're still going nowhere, but now we're going in style. We got a smile for everyone we know and those we don't. We've been falling down, but now we're feeling good. And things are moving like we knew they would. Whoa, I'm riding on a diamond way. The sun was hiding under heavy cloud There was no one guiding us for miles But any doubts and second thoughts are gone Long gone Though we deal with things that we don't understand I can feel the motion of our father's hand Oh, I'm riding on a diamond Take a look at me now. Whoa, I'm feeling good. No, I mean, I wrote it back in 1988 um, when I was a courier. And, um, you know, at the time, uh, some friends of mine in the Niagara area where I grew up, they were making a record called something like Ni- Niagara Collective or something. And, in, and they asked me if I would contribute a song. And I just happened to write this song Diamond Wave. And so there is an actual 80s version of that song. That, oh, wow. That in, in a different key that's not very good. Uh-huh. And so, you know, I, I, I did that for a cassette tape that maybe 200 people own or whatever. Yeah. And I just went on, you know, to completely forget about it. Because this was so long before I had a record deal or anything. Uh-huh. And um, so by the time I got signed, uh, you know, I'm always writing new songs and it, it just got further and further away. And, and, and what happened, I think, um, when I was putting the, the demos for this album together, I'd been playing, I just started playing Diamond Wave again around the house. And I don't even know why. I just was like messing around with it and, um, and thinking, oh, that's not such a bad song. I had to tweak some of the lyrics, I think. But um, I just sent it to Brad Jones. Uh, I didn't tell him it was an old song or anything. I just put it on with the other demos. Mm-hmm. And he really liked them when he felt that this one could be, he thought it could be a single. So I don't know if, if he's right or not. But so I, I'm just really happy after all these years to finally have a home for it because it it does in a weird way, the lyrics actually resonate more with me now. Mm-hmm. 
uh, after, uh, you know, everything we've been through, you know, all these years. And, and so I feel, I feel I'm in a better place now to sing it. Good. I love it. Um, when we were talking earlier about producers, so Bob Rock has been on here a couple of times, actually, and we talked Mm -hmm. about you. I can't remember, honestly, if it was in the interview or if it was, uh, off the record. I don't remember exactly. I think it was, but I remember him saying specifically how proud he was of his work with you because he's the heavy metal guy and you guys come together on the long player, late bloomer album, which I have to admit, I, that might be my favorite Ron album. And I heard from a lot of our Patreon supporters, which I'm going to get to in a minute. That's kind of the consensus pick for them as well. And I wondered if, if choosing to work with Bob of all people at a time like that was uh, an effort to kind of like, you know, a hail Mary, let's go for it. Why? I'm not getting the hits I deserve. I'm not on the radio. Like I should be. Let's get Bob rock in here and make this happen. Yeah. Um, it, it was sort of all of that. I mean, I, I was in a bit of a slump. I mean, uh, you know, time being hadn't done very well. Um, exit strategy kind of went came and went unnoticed and you know and i'd seen the documentary the metallica documentary mm-hmm. where bob comes off as the only sane person in the room in a way you know uh, yeah. and so i had i had a good impression of him and what happened was i was out at the junos which is our grammys out in vancouver and i'm on the sidewalk waiting for a, a car to take me to the after party and i look to my right and there's bob standing there He's waiting for a car, too, to go somewhere else. And he just says, hey, uh, big fan, gets in his car and goes away. And I'm, and so I'm at the party, and there's all these, you know, Canadian royalty there, you know, Katie Lang and Michael Buble, Brian Adams is there. And everyone's being super nice to me. You know, I'm having drinks. And, and so I'm just saying, hey, well, you guys have had hits. Like, who should I work with? And they all say Bob Rock. And I go, well, that's funny. I just met Bob Rock on the street before I came here. Yeah, Every, Everything was sort of pushing me in that direction. So I told my manager, uh, I called my manager and said, I don't know what we're going to have to do, but I really would like you to reach out to Bob's people mm-hmm. and just see if there's any interest at all. And and they got right back to us saying, yes, Bob would love to work with me. Wow. And then at that point it was on. And I was like, well, you know, we can't, you know, we have to, whatever studio he wants to work with, whatever musicians, mm-hmm. you know, we got to do this Bob's way uh, or no way at all. And and right away, I felt my um, self-confidence, which had been slipping away. I felt it yeah. kind of like, you know, it was sort of, I don't know. I felt like I really had to rise to the occasion. Yeah. And next thing you know, I'm in L- L.A., uh, recording and he put the best musicians around me i mean you know it's funny uh the day before i went to fly to los angeles uh to make my record i had um, a really bad um anxiety attack oh. where i sort of cram- crumbled to the street on the ground i thought i was having a heart attack or something mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and i think a lot of it was of this i hadn't really taken the time to you know i was embarking on this huge thing and I was worried about it, too, because obviously Bob's production style is very different from what I do. And yeah. I had all these concerns. And, and also, I was worried, is Bob going to like me or not? <laughs> all kind of yeah. stuff. Because sure. we didn't know each other at all. And, and so, but I had this, this 
yeah, this episode where I, I, I just, you know, I almost didn't go down because I, I just afterwards I felt didn't have any appetite for a few weeks. Mm -hmm. I just felt, mm -hmm. but, but, you know, the, right from the first day, we just got on a roll. Yeah. You know, and we were, you know, they even made a movie about it, which I'm not crazy yeah. about the movie, but, um, but we made, you know, we, we got on it and, um, I was in the studio with these great musicians and I was, I think, holding my own with them. And, yeah. and so, um, and that album went on, that was like my most commercially successful album. Yeah. And, and I think, so it did everything I hoped it would do um, in terms of my career and also my self-esteem and, and all that Good. stuff. Good. Know? Yeah. I, um, I love that album too. Speaking of songs that, are sort of about about sad things but aren't actually sad get in line is one of those songs too <laughs> Well, it's funny because that album is very up tempo, but it's lyrically it's quite grumpy yeah. in places, you know. That's it. And, that's it. Uh, and I think that's just where my head was at, you know. Yeah. Because I wrote a lot of the songs in New Mexico, and uh, after Exit Strategy, that whole album and the tour that followed was really not a good time for me, and I, I felt like, oh, I don't think I want to do this anymore. But when I got to New Mexico, my wife had rented a guitar for me. I didn't even bring my guitar. Yeah. And and so I was in this sort of grumpy state, and I wrote, you know, Get In Line and all these other songs. Uh -huh. And uh, and then, you know, you get excited again. Like, oh, you know, I know who's – this was before I'd, I'd met Bob, so I didn't know if he was on the horizon or anything. But yeah, he was the right guy uh, at the right time to come okay. along. You know? I love the exit strategy album. Um, my understanding is that the producer and I'm blanking on who it was took Martin the song. Yeah. That's it. You, yeah. did you, you guys recorded songs and then he thought, let's go to Cuba and yeah. have Cuban musicians play on this album. Yeah. I mean, like I was saying earlier about challenging yourself and stuff, that's not what you would think from a Ron Sexsmith album, but it's beautiful. I love that album. What, you know, what were you thinking when that happened? Well, we were in London because he his studio is in London, and okay. this was this was the third album I'd made with with Martin, uh -huh. and you know we're working on this record in London, and and at one point he's like, uh, I can hear some horns on the on these tracks, mm. 
And I'm figuring, oh, well, you must know some guys in London who can do that. And he was going, uh, no, actually, the best horn players in the world are, are in Havana. Yeah. And, and so all of a sudden, you know, we're all getting on a plane. And I was a little nervous guy. I'd never been there before. Yeah. And we were going to be recording at the famous studio, Egram in Havana, where, you know, the Buena Vista Social Club and all that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It was a trip, you know, being there. My my friend Alex Cuba, who's a lives in Canada, but he's from Cuba. He's the first person I saw as I got off the plane, mm-hmm. and he's wearing this white tuxedo and his big afro and everything. <laughs> I, I, it just he looked like the coolest person in the world, and it made me instantly feel less nervous about mm-hmm. being in this whole because it's quite a culture shock to be there. Oh, I bet. Yeah. Um, but yeah, you know, so the whole time I was there. I didn't have a whole lot to do because I'd already recorded the tracks in England. Uh-huh. So I was just there every day at the studio listening to the horn players. And um, and that was pretty exciting. And the percussionists. And yeah. um, finally on the last day before we we flew home, I'd written the song called Brighter Still. So I got to go on the out on the floor and do it live with the horn players, and so that was sort of the most work I, I did, uh, you know, because mostly in Havana I was just listening or yeah walking around. You know. It the thing I like about that album is that it doesn't overwhelm a Ron Sexsmith album to the point where it sounds Cuban or Hispanic or whatever. It sounds mm-hmm. they're just nice accents to an existing it's a ron sexsmith album that you can count on with these beautiful little accents that are a little different than what you might be used to hearing from ron you know yeah well i did worry when martin suggested it that there's nothing you know there's nothing cuban about my music and i think it's going to be this like frankenstein monster you know having to sort of superimpose that element onto my my songs but i do feel yeah, it gave the record a nice sort of flavor that none of my albums, and also I'm playing a lot of piano on that record, and that was the first I'd done that. Um, the other thing about that record, too, is, and this has never happened before, I, I'd spent months walking around with the rough mixes in my ears. Mm-hmm. So when it came time to actually mix the record, every time I heard a new mix, I hated it. I said, I, no, it, you know, I can't hear, I, on the rough mix, I could hear this and that. And yeah. so the, it was the very first album I've ever did where, and the only album where we went with the rough mixes. Oh, interesting. So, it, so it give it a, yeah, it gives it a kind of warts and all sort yeah. of, yeah. like let, let it be vibe or something. Yeah. You know, the, the yeah. Album. So 
I think I think it was, was the right choice ultimately. So yeah, I love it. Um, as I mentioned, we have some Patreon supporters, and I have to say, when I told them I was talking with you, um, I got a bigger response than I get normally. And wow. so there, you have a lot of people that love you, Ron. And um, I want to. I always try to intersperse questions that they send in with the conversation. And one of them, uh, Dave Gu David Gutierrez is a big fan of yours. He, had, he said over a couple of things. Number one, he says, Thinking Out Loud is one of the greatest songs of the 20th century. How did this song come about? Well, that was written, um, I just recorded my my first album and I was waiting for it to come out. And I, 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 again, I was trying to stockpile songs in a way so that when it came time to make my next album, I wasn't scratching my head looking for songs. Is that why it's called Other Songs? I've always yeah. wondered that. <laughs> yeah, El Elvis Costello thought I should have called it something else. Uh -huh. But the thing, for me, Other Songs, it, it wasn't wasn't meant to be nonchalant or like a knockoff. For me, the title was sort of like Leonard Cohen would have like songs from a room or mm. recent song. So that was sort of my thought behind it. Um, but thinking out loud, um, you know, I was really, at the time I was getting into all like Chet Baker and stuff like mm. that. I loved when he, you know, and, and those standards that he would sing. And I guess in a way I was trying to write like a standard. Um, and I was also lyrically, commenting on what was happening in my home home life at the time you know i was i'd uh i'd started to travel i'd never i was always home and all and now i was i was gone and you know it was creating some difficulties and so that that was me you know trying to write a song about hey let's you know work this out somehow yeah. um but i but i it has a sort of picking style like i'm a huge fan of gordon lightfoot it has that sort of lightfoot front porch kind of pick and style that I, I think I've used on almost every record on a song or two. Mm -hmm. But for me, the thing about that song that made it sort of extra elegant was there's this, it's like a flat five chord that happens off the top in the intro mm -hmm. that's, you know, throughout the song. And, and, you know, and sometimes I would learn a chord. So, you know, I can't remember where I, if someone showed me that chord, but you know, if I if I had a new chord in my arsenal, you know, I would want to incorporate sure. that into the song. So the first time I went, you it just, you know, it had it. It, it maybe kind of whoa, that's that's cool. I don't know yeah. if I'm allowed to do that, but I I did it. <laughs> and Mitchell Froom really loved that song too. Uh -huh. And I think it, 
um, yeah, it's a song I'm very, very proud of. And I think it has one of my best lyrics of, of all time. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, yeah so it's, it's one that I still, still really enjoy playing. Good. Okay. Um, his other question was something that I've always wondered about too, and that's come up with any Canadian artist I've talked to, and that is what are the challenges of breaking America? I am still, I, I'm still uncertain why there needs to be a separation between a Canadian artist and an American artist. Hmm. Uh, like, what in the world is the difference? We're neighbors, and if we could allow all the British artists that want to come in, what do we? What's the deal with Canada? You know, hmm. what did you face? Yeah. Well, I got signed in America, which which helped. Yeah. There are a lot of bands who are huge in Canada that couldn't get arrested in America, you know. Yeah. And I would have been fine with that if that was my how my story went. Um, but you know, and obviously, right now, some of the biggest artists in the world are from Canada. You know, yeah. Drake and The Weeknd and everyone. Sure. Um, but and you know, when I signed, I remember. When I, my album came out, the very same day was Alanis Morissette's record, when she, and she's Canadian. That, that album like went on and mil- sold millions, and yeah. mine went a whole different way, you know. Was, yeah, it sure did. But um, I don't know. I mean, I think, uh, and, and then you go back to Joni and Neil. You know, ca- the Canadians have always, they, you know, they they've made their mark. I, I mm-hmm. think, but but by the time I got signed, and my record record came out. Um, the music I was making, it, it it wasn't really what radio was playing. Mm. You know, I mean, at the time, you know, it was very um, sort of grungy and 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 I didn't have that sound and I didn't have that look. Mm. So it was really hard for Interscope to get me. And also, uh, I think now I'd have a better chance of getting on the radio because I sing better. But at the time, mm-hmm. you know, a lot of people, I mean, thankfully enough, people liked my voice that I was able to have a career. But uh, there was a lot of people that felt I didn't sing very well. So mm-hmm. I remember I'd be driving I, all over America on tour. All I did back then in the 90s was open for people. So I was yeah. constantly on on the road, listening to the radio, and also trying to figure it out, like, what can I do to get on the radio? Like, mm-hmm. I, do I have to sing better? I, I have to uh, – because I knew I, I couldn't do the kind of music that Pearl Jam was doing. <laughs> you know, I didn't sure. know how to do that. And then Eminem, uh, not Eminem, but uh, Beck was out, uh-huh. and he was doing this kind of cool, folky, hip hop. I don't know, like, yeah. and I didn't know how to do that either. So there was just this sort of feeling, like, uh, like maybe I was too late. Like maybe if uh-huh. I'd been signed twenty years earlier, uh-huh. I would have had a better shot. But, but even so, I mean, you know, I mean, I'm about to tour America for the first time, and uh, in, in since 2015. And and I, I'm I'm optimistic. I mean, uh, I've never cracked America the way that some of my, you know, uh-huh. fellow Canadians have. But but I have also, you know, there's certain cities where I do pretty well. And yeah, um, you know, I've done Conan, I've done sure. Jimmy Kimmel, and things like that. So, but I, I it's it's just again, I, I can't really expect too much because of the kind of music I do and. You know how I look, all this kind of stuff. You know, I wasn't good like Ryan Adams was able to have a cigarette ah. dangling in front of an old typewriter and have that. I never could do that. You know, I didn't know right. how to have that cool look. So yeah. and that's part of it, being able to project yeah, this. Image, it is. You it know, is. and uh, and there's part of me that didn't really care anyway because that. Sure. You know, uh, you just have to like my, my heroes like Randy Newman couldn't do yeah. that. You know, right. Like, 
and it's Harry Nilsson and those people. So it just feels like a lot of work to play the yeah. rock star game and wear the flashy clothes and stuff. I mean, I try to wear flashy clothes on stage. I try to uh -huh. wear nice jackets and this and that. And I and I was a huge fan of Elton John and uh -huh. and all those guys. They they, you know, they had this sort of larger than life thing. And uh -huh. I try to do that my own way, but it, it obviously, um, yeah, I mean, it's just not, it wasn't in my wheelhouse, you know, to, yeah, yeah. to do that. So, um, yeah. yeah, but when frankly, I, the people who like me tend to accept me for who I am. That's right. Yeah. That's the beauty of it. I know when I saw the cover of um, Hermitage and you've got your pink boa <laughs> while you're mowing the lawn, and I thought, that's about as outrageous as Ron sexsmith gets right there that's about as far as it goes um, and now i remember doing that photo shoot thinking this is a big mistake but um <laughs> but anyway I thought, well it's a very lighthearted album so yeah. you know yeah it is yeah um i okay another one of our patreon supporters derek mansfield he's a canadian as well loves you very much um he was asking you know what is that like when people you mentioned elvis costello earlier elvis paul mccartney these people start singing your praises you, that's got to be a mind-bending experience for a guy like you. Well, yeah, um, especially in the beginning, because yeah. when my album finally, I mean, it came out in 95, but it didn't really come out until 96. That's when it was released overseas. Mm -hmm. And and that's where, uh, you know, all these people I'd been admiring all my life started saying nice things, like Elton and Paul and, uh, you know, well, but other Elvis. people, yeah. Elvis Costello, you know, yeah. Nicole, Chris Martin and all that. Right. I mean, all that was a few years later. But um, and that it sort of gave me a leg to stand on because I was sort of in a. You know, they begrudgingly released it overseas because they I think they really wanted to drop me the label. Mm. And but but they, I think they had they saw that something was happening in Europe and, and that we should, you know, get me over there and so it was kind of indication yeah. that the press it was received so well and that all these people who were kind of considered the best songwriters in the world were were you know giving me shout outs everywhere and mm -hmm. and so then the label started being a little bit nicer to me i think yeah so it was really surreal i mean my first okay. trip to england i had i went over to paul mccartney's house and had breakfast and oh. met linda met linda and played some songs so that was just nuts you know so <laughs> oh my gosh yeah so since then i've met most of my heroes like ray davies and yeah randy newman and yeah and i have to pinch myself because um I, you know i think in many ways that these sort of the old guard, I think they just saw that I had so much respect for what they did. And, yeah. and I was trying to kind of carry that on following. So the too. Yeah. yeah. Um, I mentioned Neil Finn earlier. Have you ever crossed paths with Neil? Yeah. I toured with the Finn brothers. That's what um, I thought. Point. And, um, you know, one time he called me out of the blue, he was playing Toronto, just a solo show. And he asked me if I want to come down and sing a couple songs with him. So I went down and I was like sort of the surprise guest. Uh -huh. And we sang, um, we sang Moon River for some reason. Wow. And we, and we sang, um, might have been God Only Knows. Or, or, okay. Or maybe it a was. A couple of only, covers, huh? Oh, no, I know. It was Caroline No. Oh. Um, by wow. the Beach Boys. And, uh, and, and, you know, and a few other times when he was in town, 
I went, you know, backstage and, and said hi. But I don't know know Neil very well. And now, obviously, Mitchell Froome is in the band, right? Mm-hmm. He's in Starterhouse. So, but, you know, Neil is one of those guys, I mean, you know, in, in the 80s when I wasn't really happy with a lot of the music I heard on the radio, I mean, the Crowded House, they were making music that I yeah. understood, you know. Yeah, agreed. Um, one of our other uh, Patreon supporters, Martin, asked about that movie that you mentioned earlier. Um, he's also one of the people who says he thinks Long Player is one of your best uh, albums. Why, why do you have reservations about the the Love Shines out, uh, movie? I must confess, I've never seen it. I've always wanted to. I was going to try it, getting ready to talk to you. It wasn't streaming or I couldn't find it. So I, uh, I'll have yeah. to rent it eventually. But why do you have reservations about it? Well, you know, I've seen so many great music documentaries. And they're very artfully done. And I didn't feel mine was. It's kind of the guy who made it was told. I felt he was out to tell a story that wasn't entirely mine. Mm. You know, he was out to tell kind of a sad sack kind of story mm. because and initially it became the, the story was a, was about me wanting to play Massey Hall in Toronto. And then so they kept I mean, they were filming me for about seven years and I didn't know what they were doing or what it was going to be. But at, at a certain point, it the movie shifted and it became all about me working with Bob Rock mm-hmm. and wanting to have a hit, like a hit record. Mm-hmm. And that became the sole focus. Um, and, you know, and it's done over this period of time. And sometimes my weight's up and my weight's down, like, you know, depending mm-hmm. on where I was in the film. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's hard for one thing to be able to, I don't like looking at myself on the screen. Of and there are some bits about the movie that I liked, but ultimately I, I thought, you know, I mean, and there's, and none of my best known songs are even in the film. Like they're, mm. they're, it's one of those sort of, you know, with a lot of documentaries, they have these talking heads, you know, they have these sort of famous people saying nice things about you. But then I felt, well, there's nothing, you have that, but then you don't back it up with, with footage of me doing what I'm supposed to be good at, you know? Yeah. Yeah. So I had a lot of issues and it's funny though, cause that movie came out in England. It was on the BBC one night and it changed everything for me. I mean, really? Because it came out the day before my album was released, and the album sales went nuts. I had a two top ten hits, wow. and not just not just because of the movie, but that the movie yeah. and the album yes helped played a part. And then I'm playing, you know, headline Royal Albert Hall after that. So, um, so I'm fine that people like it, and there's a lot of people who like that movie, but Good. I, you know, it's I had so many issues with it. <laughs> we uh something else i want to ask you you were we were talking and kind of joking earlier about rock star cultivating a rock star image you've cultivated an image for yourself on twitter as you know yeah. of mm-hmm. being i it's funny when i was announcing to the patreon supporters that i was talking to you i said i'm i get to interview the happiest guy on twitter because <laughs> you your image is the opposite of that you know that was partly why i wanted to go on twitter is because I was trying to combat the image that the movie was, you know, mm. because my band and I, we're just laughing all the time when we were on the road, you know, and, yeah. and, and there was a, you know, you, I'm generally a pretty laid back. I'm pretty, you know, you can tell by looking at content, yeah. content person, you know, yeah. but I mean, and, and so with Twitter, which by the way, I didn't want anything to do with Twitter when, uh, you know, initially my, the, the label yeah. talked me into it. Yeah. And I was like, well, what am I, I don't even have a cell phone. So I'm like, what am I supposed to do with Twitter? Um, and so, but I've always loved Jack Benny and Groucho Marx. And uh-huh. so, and it's, and I don't know what it is, if it's a writing 
a word play exercise, but my mind is constantly doing these little riddles and mm -hmm. puns. And now I finally have an outlet for it. So I started yeah. putting it. And also I do um, video, upload videos from my YouTube channel, mm -hmm. mostly cover songs. Mm -hmm. And so it's become a, a sort of like my own 1970s variety show where I do yeah. sketches and jokes and songs. And, yeah. and it's become a happy place where, because Twitter is, is often a very judgmental place. And yeah. so I've, I've wanted to make it a, a place where, you know, where people can just, you know, yeah. feel like a sense of community. You, uh, you tweeted a week or two ago that you were listening to Bowie's Station to Station album. Yeah. And um, I commented that that's my second favorite Bowie album. What's your favorite Bowie album? Hunky Dory. Really? Okay, that's yeah. I have that at third at three. That's my third favorite. I think I like Hunky Dory so much because it was sort of the most straight ahead songwriting sure. that he did. Like Life on Mars is like that that's like Cole Porter or something, you know. It's a, yeah. Um but also uh I love kooks, I love uh -huh. um, Oh You Pretty Things, you know. Yeah. I don't know, that that was my introduction to Bowie and, and I just and it's always just been like, I love the, you know, the cover, the album. Of course. Cover. So, yeah. It makes total sense now that I think about it, that Ron Sexsmith's favorite Bowie album would be Hunky Dory because those are the two. You have a lot in common, I think, with that album. It's more of a singer-songwriter album than the others. Um, okay, one other question I want to throw out there. Uh, we have, One of our listeners is named Sugar Mouse. And um, they say, first of all, that... Um, uh, huge fan. It's this long comment about how much he loves you, and or I assume it's a he. I don't know. Uh, let me see here. My question for Ron would be this: How does he come up with so many incredible memories or memorable melodies? And oh. that's something I was. I, you probably get asked something like that again a lot, and it's the probably one of the same things I would ask Neil Finn. Is it just seems as an outsider that there is just an endless spout that never gets shut off of perfect melodies going on inside you? Yeah. Again, yeah, I mean, it's a sort of a mystery to me, too. Um, but it's like when I'm cutting the grass or, or whatever, or doing the dishes, I, I'm always humming to myself. Hmm. And and so oftentimes I'll I'll be like, oh, what is that? Is that is that somebody else's tune or, you know, but it, the melody for me is like the, you know, the easy part. It's the lyrics that, that have me pulling my hair out and stuff. Hmm. But so, and all my heroes were melodic, you know, they were like the Lennon-McCartney backrack, Harry Nilsson. And so I grew up, thankfully, in a very melodic time period. Uh -huh. And I feel in some ways it's kind of taken a backseat in a lot of music now. Maybe, or maybe, maybe it's coming back, I don't know. But, you know, there was an article that someone did a few years back where the headline was called Melody's Child. You know, and there's a picture of me. And I thought that's sort of a nice way of putting it because I've always yeah. felt... That I was sort of raised by music in a way, and yeah. raised raised on melody. Yeah, and um, yeah, and I, and I I really tweak things like when I'm got a song in the works, I'll sing it a whole bunch of different ways and try to find the right. Mm -hmm. I try to find that place where it feels like it belongs to me, mm -hmm. you know, because there's only so many notes, and I'm sure, you know, sometimes I'll have a song where the the verse is like a Lightfoot song, but the chorus is like a Paul Williams song, or something, you know. Mm -hmm. And and that's just it's all in my DNA, all all this great music that I grew up with, and mm -hmm. um, and so it's you know for me it's just amazing that I get to do 
this for a living and and i uh, that i found something that i was good good at yeah. you know so yeah. but yeah so melody for me is just yeah that's what i gravitate towards yeah uh sugar mouse was also asking about the song speaking with the angel Williams on here recently and she covered that song on her side project cry 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 um what's the story of speaking with the angel that's like one of the very first songs I ever wrote really it was written in um it was written right after my son was born in 1985 and he was only a few weeks old and we lived in a, a barn in the middle of Quebec and there just so happened to be a piano in the barn and um I was I didn't know how to play the piano, but I was trying to, you know, teach myself. And so I just, uh, he was on the ground on, the, on his baby blanket making sort of noises. And my ex-partner had made a comment in French that he's speaking with an angel. I guess it's an expression that babies can see angels and, you know, things like that. And it, it just sort of the light bulb went on over my head. And I just started as a young father. You know, I was 21 at the time. I was I was write, trying to write a song about trying to be a good father and not wreck this perfect thing, this beautiful thing, by you know, which some parents end up doing. You know, yeah, and, yeah. and I was just that's really what the song was about. Some people thought I wrote it about an autistic person or something mm. like that, but it was really just a kind of a song to myself, telling me, you know, just not to not to mess yeah. it up because uh and hopefully i you know hopefully i didn't right but yeah um, but for me mo more importantly that's the song that opened all the doors for me that one got oh, me my really publishing deal and it got me my record deal too so. wow um i want to ask you um you posted on facebook recently about the emotional and mental toll it takes on you to tour sometimes yeah. that it's not necessarily maybe your natural environment but I was, and I was curious to, are you, two questions. Number one, would you prefer to just make records and never go out and tour? Do you feel that strongly about it? And number two, if you don't, and you do kind of enjoy some parts of touring, what would you miss most? If it all ended today, what mm. about touring would, would you be sad that you couldn't do anymore? Well, the, you know, touring once upon a time was, was a lot more fun than it is now. It was more, the traveling in general was more carefree and fun right up until 9-11. Yeah. And then it sort of got back to normal a bit. And then the pandemic, you know, the, the thing I, you know, when, you know, so this year I was touring for the first time since 2017. And 
And the thing, uh, once I got in the groove of it, I just really loved having something to do, you know, like I love being backstage. That's something I would miss. I love being in a dressing room. I love okay. how all the instruments are set up and I go out and I just have to play. I miss, I miss singing for people. And that's what yeah. I would miss. I don't miss, uh, I don't miss, uh, or I didn't miss sitting in a car for seven hours trying to get, you know what I mean? Or I'm a nervous flyer too. I don't like oh. to the turbulence. Those are the things and airports. Those are the things I, I w wouldn't miss, mm -hmm. but, um, yeah, and also I'm older now, so it's I don't travel in a very luxurious way, you know, I, like some bands are able to do. So I'm lugging my own bags, and and the older I get, it it becomes sort of less appealing. But I, but even so, once you're there and you're on stage like that, that's something that I would I don't think I could live without. I, I really love to sing because it's kind of my one sort of superpower you know it's something yeah. that it's what i am able to offer uh -huh. and when i'm not like i felt so useless during the pandemic not being able to play uh -huh. except for friends around or something so um you know most of my heroes they're still out there and they're 80 and they're they're still doing it yeah yeah so i, I hope unless the world you know is in a really rough place i i hope to continue, I hope my voice holds up i hope yeah. I'm still able to look sort of presentable, you know, uh -huh. I'm older now and I don't, I don't always feel like I want people to look at me. Right. So, uh -huh. yeah, I know what you mean. Um, where are you again right now? We live in a town called Stratford, Ontario. Okay. That's what I thought. Near Toronto. Yeah. That's what I thought. Um, okay. Just a couple more. Um, one of the other songs I want to ask you about that, uh, is not too big. Okay. And was that produced by Steve Earle? Mm-hmm. It was. Yeah, the whole album was, yeah. That's what I thought. Yeah, and that, that was one of the ones. I had an A-list and a B-list, and that one was on the B-list because I just thought, no one wants to hear me singing like a bluesy, <laughs> a bluesy song. But I think Steve, he, he wanted to make that kind of record because he saw me playing in the bars back in the late 80s before I had a record deal. And and he then he'd heard the albums I made for Interscope and wondered why I didn't sound like that anymore. Mm -hmm. So with with that album Blue Boy, he he really wanted me to try to sort of rock out a little bit. So we you know I tried. So not not too big was just sort of uh, yeah it was sort of a I think a song a lot of people can relate to you know about being feeling a bit self conscious at a party or mm -hmm. or you know 
I was at a point where a lot of people were sort of talking my ear off whenever I'd go out or something. So, mm-hmm. you know, so that song is sort of a humorous song about, yeah, just where I was at. And okay. I, think, I think we got a pretty, I haven't heard it in a long time, but I, I think it was a fun song to record for sure. I bet. It's got great drums. That's what I like about it. The drums on that. And I think there's yeah. even some hand claps in there. And I always love yeah. those kinds of accents, you know, when they get thrown in. Yeah, and I'm playing like a resophonic, and yeah. um, that whole session actually, Blue Boy, was really fun. I was with Don Kerr, my drummer, who mm-hmm. he'd never played on one of my albums before, but he'd been playing drums for, with with me since 87. So finally, like Steve Earle remembered him from playing the bars with me and said, whatever happened to that guy? And so we brought him down. Mm-hmm. He's also a great singer. So we just had a really fun time. We were at the Spence Manor Suites, which is like a legendary hotel in Nashville. Mm-hmm. Uh, like Elvis stayed there and the Beatles stayed there and that. I don't even know if it's still there now, but um, anyway, it was just really fun to have Don on and Brad Jones who produced my new album. That's him on bass, you know? Oh, interesting. Okay. Yeah. Um, okay. Lastly, I had Daniel Lanois here um, last year, I think it was, or the year before. Anyway, uh, he's just, uh, the creative mind on that guy is incredible. Yeah. Um, I don't remember, I think he, is he just on a couple of songs on the first album? What did he, how did you two work together? Well, it was, what happened was, um, you know, he was a friend of Jimmy Iovine's. Sure. And Jimmy Iovine didn't like my first album at all with Mitchell Froome. And, and there was this pressure on me to scrap the whole album and do it over with Dan. Mm-hmm. And I was, a, I was put in this really awkward situation because I really liked Dan but I also, I really like Mitchell and I, I, I wanted to fight for my album. Mm-hmm. And then Jimmy was like, well, look, just go in the studio with Dan. And if you don't like it, we won't put it on the record. Mm-hmm. But then of course I go do it with Dan and the label's flipping out. Like this is the best thing you've ever done. You, you know, and there was more pressure to scrap the album. And, and so anyway, we came to a, sort of a compromise where I said, well, can we just sort of put it on at the end? Like a, a bonus track or something, mm. you know, because I, they wanted to put it on where the, the Mitchell Froome version of There's a Rhythm was, mm. which was the second song. And I said, well, that, that won't make any sense because it's such a different produ- production style. It's like making a movie, you know, a, a, you know, Spielberg movie. And then, mm-hmm. and then the, the third scene is a Tarantino directed yeah. scene. You know what I mean? <laughs> right. Totally. <laughs> and that's how I thought of it. And they were like, oh, no one cares. Don't, you know, no one will notice. But but it wasn't their job to care. It was my job yeah, to right. care. So, so we put it on at the end. And and then we, we, we tried on a number of occasions to make albums. We were going to do the second album together. Hmm. And then he got too busy. And then the album I did with Steve Earle, we were also going to, to, to do that record. Mm-hmm. And then he had um, a U2 album he was doing. So, mm-hmm. And then the last time I approached him about making a record, he just told me he didn't think it was in the cards. Oh. Which, which I thought, well, you're hold, holding the cards. I don't know, but <laughs> but um, I, you know, I would still love to work with him. I don't think it's going to happen, but I yeah. would love to. Yeah. Well, I hope that happens. Two great things coming together. Um, yeah. Well, look, Ron, you've given me an hour of your time. I'm so grateful. Um, I just, you know, you've heard it from everybody. You're just one of the most talented craftsmen of songwriting and songs ever. Mm-hmm. Thank and. You. Um, I love Vivian Line. It's a great new album of yours. And it's great because, like I said, it's just in keeping with all the other greatness you put out in the world. So thank well, you very I, much. Thank you. I hope people will like it. I'm really excited about it. So, All right. There you have it. Ron Sexsmith. Again, he's just so good at what he does. Go give Vivian Line a listen. 
because again, if you if you're new to him or you don't, you know, you've never paid super close attention or you don't know where to begin, start with the new album. It's great. Um, I want to close it out with. I was mentioning in here about how so many of his albums end with these beautiful, almost like hymns, you know, that close out every album. And this is another one of them. This is called Nowadays, off of that long player, late bloomer. Is it late bloomer? No. Yeah, long player, late bloomer. I always get it backwards. Anyway, album from a few years ago that's so good. So, and he's out on tour. Check the, the website is on the link to the show here, or the link to the website is in the show notes here. Go check that out if you want to see him live. Next week, we're kind of interrupting this span of really good singer-songwriters to go a different direction next week. We're talking to the... So this guy was the front man of a fairly successful British band of the late 80s, early 90s. They're primarily known for one song, which is still, you know, kind of an anthem today. The band is no more. He is actually enjoying a hit album in the UK right now as his sort of like second chapter persona. It's, I know I'm being kind of vague, but that's what it is. Um, he's got a new project, has done for a while. It's going really well. He has a brand new album that's a hit in the UK. And his story is probably the most intense and raw and honest conversation we've ever had on this show. Uh, it threw me for a loop. I was not expecting for the, the experience that we had to happen. But you've got to hear it to believe it. And that's what's coming up next week. Huge thanks, as always, to the Yan the Man Makevich, my right-hand man. Thanks, buddy, for everything. Uh, you guys can like our Facebook page. You can send me a message on there. You can send us an email, thehustlepod at gmail.com, or you can find us on Twitter, at thehustlepod. I am, by the way, there, you can still, there's still time to get in the running to win the Alice Cooper book. You just have to sign up for Patreon. The link to do that is also in the description of this show, okay? I don't think we have any bonus material coming out this week. Yan and I are both pretty busy. So, uh, but maybe in the future, there's a deep dive we're going to get to here soon. All right? Thanks, everybody. We love you.